6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah with a session titled, The Physics of Immortality. Paul talks about it as the first fruits. And if you study Leviticus 23, you know in the Feasts of Israel you had the Passover, which corresponds to his, his offering himself. But on the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, so whether he was resurrected on a Wednesday or Friday, I won't get into that one here, but whatever it was, the next Shabbat and the next morning, which we would call Sunday morning, is the time that they celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. And indeed, several places in Scripture, it points to Jesus Christ as our first fruits. And one way to look at that is that, well, of course, it's the first sheaf of the forthcoming grain harvest. And it was uh, uh, the, uh, indicated that the harvest would be followed by the rest of the sheaves. It was, uh, it was sort of like a down payment or a guarantee or a security deposit. That was the concept behind it. And that's what his resurrection involves. Now, how many of you had anything to do with your first birth? Okay, good. Okay. You had nothing to do with it, yet you are involved in its sin. You're subject to its genetic defects passed on. You had nothing to do with your second birth. God did that. But you're involved in its deliverance and, and you're implicated in the purity of God through that. Now, all this is testified to and assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It assures us of our resurrection. Now, the concept of a resurrection, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, and I'm being, being very light here in the interest of time to get at some other points I want to make. But it's interesting, it's no harder to believe in the resurrection than it is a harvest. We plant a seed in the ground and it brings forth grain, right? We, the closer you are to the land, the more natural it all seems. It's kind of interesting. You come home from a hard day at work and you discover on the kitchen table there are some newspapers and some of these dirty uh, bulbs sitting there. You ask your wife, uh, what are these things? You spent good money for these? Oh, those are gladiolus. Oh, come on. No, no, watch. So she takes these out of the backyard, plants them in the ground, waters them, and pretty soon this sprout comes up, and pretty soon you have glorious flowers. Beautiful things. From those ugly, dirty little bulbs. Two points. Not only did they come forth as a model of the resurrection, they bore very little resemblance to what was planted. Not wild? We're heading for an upgrade. By the way, there are records, I haven't been able to verify this, but I understand there's records of wheat sprouting from seeds from ancient Egypt. They find them in these tombs and things, and apparently there's been some records where they've actually sprouted and grown. Now, whether it's true or not, I haven't really checked, but I've, I've read that in some of them. There's another example that I'm fond of using, and that's the idea we've all played with it as kids. That's the caterpillar. How many of you played with a caterpillar when you were small? Yeah, we all have, right? Caterpillar is a strange creature. Caterpillar is... Um, for all practical purposes, he's subject to a two-dimensional existence. He wanders around. He crosses the sidewalk, hoping there are no skateboarders on the way. You know, 
He's a two-dimensional creature for all practical purposes. Then one day, he crawls up underneath a leaf, and he spends some effort building a crypt. Some people call it a cocoon. Crawls inside, and for all intents and purposes, is dead to the world. Then one day, of course, it breaks open, and out comes a caterpillar? No. A gorgeous butterfly. Far more beautiful than the creature it replaces, and it also enjoys an additional dimension of existence. It's truly three-dimensional. It can fly. Interesting, interesting model the Lord has put before us. Now, what Paul does is, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, he, he, he continues this theme of the uh, resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And he goes through, and I want, I'm not going to take the time here, but I, I at least want to uh, acknowledge that he hammers pretty hard on the fact that this belief, this doctrine, this view, this understanding of the resurrection is the most essential of all our Christian beliefs. It's the centerpiece of Christianity. And he goes through and builds a whole argument that if there was no resurrection, what that implies. See, if Christ was not resurrected, then we're not. And we're in our sins. And he goes through and he, and he, and he develops that, and uh, I'll let you go through that. But he then concludes this incredible chapter, lengthy chapter, on the resurrection with an allusion to an event that's pretty strange. He alludes to a mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament, that was his privilege to reveal. The word mystery in the English is translated from the Greek word mysterion, which has a special meaning. It's something like a password. It's something that's not known till now, but I'm not even revealing it to you. A mystery is something I'm now that you didn't know, no one could have known before, now I'm telling you. That's what the term really implies, the word mysterion in the Greek. Verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Strange event. See, there will be a time when the resurrection occurs, there's some of us that will still be alive. So Paul points out there will be some that won't sleep, that won't pass into death, as we know it, but will immediately, in an instant, be changed. Now he will expand on this more thoroughly, I should say, it's, it's more expanded on more thoroughly in 1 Thessalonians 4 and some other passages. And I, won't, I don't want to get into all that here tonight. There's some other directions I'd like to take us. But I want you to understand that tied to this concept of the resurrection of the body are those who receive the resurrection bodies directly from life as we know it. I'm, I personally don't have a, a, a lot of comfort with these little drawings and pictures that show you know, people flying off into the sky at the rapture, because I don't think those are the bodies that the, body, that the scripture is talking about. What happens to the bodies that leave behind? I have no idea. All kinds of speculative conjectures. I won't indulge in those right now, but I do want you to understand that the resurrection body we're talking about is quite different. Most people assume that, though, that when that happens to the believers, that uh, there'll be the bodies will disappear. Maybe. The reason for that is because his body was not in the tomb. He has a resurrection body. A lot of reasons for that, because to demonstrate it was a physical resurrection. Will we be, by analogy, that way? Very likely. I can't argue with that. And yet, who knows? 
And there's another whole uh, aspect of uh, so-called rapture of the church that deserves a special study, so we'll do that in a whole separate study. But I'd like to uh, take this exploration of the resurrection in a slightly different direction. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to the earth for the purpose of the manger. He came for a cross. There's aspects of that that I'd like to deal with, and I would like to indulge in a... Uh, illustration for which I'm indebted to John Corson. John Corson has many wonderful gifts, but one of his outstanding ones is his gift for illustrations. And he used one once that I find very illuminating. So I'd like to recount it to you. Uh, he, I as I recall, he described this as a dream he had one night. And he dreamed that the Father was uh, passing through the universe, going throughout the universe, showing him galaxy after galaxy. But as they finally zeroed in on this one particular galaxy and then one particular planet in this galaxy. And he was puzzled why this particular planet. As they got closer, he noticed that this particular planet was inhabited entirely by dogs. Strange dream, huh? But anyway, um, so he's all puzzled about this particular thing. And as he gets closer, he realizes not only is this planet in, in, inhabited entirely by dogs, uh, they are nasty, snarling, vicious dogs. I almost should have my splint and the wrappings from the incident that I had with this dog here not long ago. I thought I lost my right hand. But in any case, they were those kinds of dogs. <laughs> and he's puzzled. He says, Father, I don't understand. And the father says, well, you see, John, I happen to love those dogs. I know they're nasty, snarling, vicious animals, but I happen to love those dogs. In fact, John, that's why I'm showing you this, is I want you to go down there and carry that message to them. I would like you to let them know that I love them. And John says, well, you know, you're the, you're the boss, you're God, whatever you want, of course. Well, no, John, you see, what you're going to have to do in order to do that, you, of course, will have to become a dog. Well, whatever you want, of course. In fact, John, what I want you to do is I want you to become a chihuahua. <laughs> and there's something else you need to understand, John, is when you go down there and try to give them that message, they're not going to receive it. In fact, they are going to tear you to pieces. But that's okay, because I'm going to resurrect you, John. Oh, okay. You know, that's... But there's one other thing you need to understand, John. Even after I resurrect you, you will have to remain a chihuahua forever. Suddenly this little, you know, children's story example takes on a rather macabre color, doesn't it? See, you and I have a tendency, without thinking about it very much, we have sort of visualized Jesus Christ becoming man. And in 33, 33 and a half years, whatever, uh, becomes crucified, dead, buried, raised again. And, and we sort of visualize him becoming a man for 33 and a half years. But as you really study your Bible, there are two things that blow you away as you try to get your mind around them. The first is that God, the creator of the universe, became man and dwelt among us. That's a wild idea. And I think most of us have had at least some exposure to that concept. But then as we mature in our understanding of the scripture, the real miracle isn't that God became man, but rather something else. As we understand 
a perfect, holy God and the sinfulness of man, as we begin to understand the gulf that's between the two, the amazing thing is not that God became man, but rather that as we speak here tonight, there is a man on the throne of God. Wild stuff. Wild stuff. Now, it's in this vein that I want to indulge in a, um, another question as we explore the resurrection, as we, as we try to understand as much as we can about the cross, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. As we want to understand this resurrection this evening, I want to call your attention to something that's bothered me for many, many years. I've noticed as I read the scripture that for some reason, people seem to have trouble recognizing him after that Easter morning, as we call it. And let's just take a few examples to get across what I'm trying to say. Turn with me to John chapter 20 for one example of this. John chapter 20 deals with Easter morning, as we call it. Let's just pick it up about verse 11. Mary stood outside of the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, one at the hand of the other the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Now if you visited that tomb in, in, in Israel, you know the floor plan. As you stoop in and look through the doorway, there's sort of a weeping chamber, as they call it, and then to the right, the little entrance where there's the esophagus and all that. She's stooping down, looking in there, sees these two angels. Body's gone, right? So as they tell her that, she now hadn't entered. She's looking through the door. She turns and looks at the garden. Verse, uh, let's see, where are we? Verse 13. They said, Woman, why weepest thou? She said, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have lain uh, laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Well, that's a little strange, first of all. This is not a casual acquaintance. She loved him. Not many days earlier, she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She loved him. And she sees him there and doesn't recognize him. There's all kinds of conjectures, but let's just read on. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him from here, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. How pathetic. Can you imagine this frail little kid going to drag this body somewhere? I mean, but then Jesus in verse 16 says, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is say, Master. Interesting. It would seem as we read this account that one of the closest to him, Mary herself, the only one, by the way, before his death knew it was coming. He told the disciples many times they didn't get it until later they realized. The only one that recognized his forthcoming death was Mary. She understood it. And yet, in the garden, she doesn't recognize him until she hears his voice. Mary, something clicked. What? That's him. Interesting. 
What's interesting about this to me is that it's consistent. Every place we see him we, uh, after his resurrection, they seem to have trouble recognizing him. Turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. First part of the chapter deals with the morning events, but I'd like to shift from Easter morning to Easter afternoon. Let's pick it up by verse 13. A famous account, you've all read it, but let's just refresh your memory. It says, And behold, two of them that went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. My horse racing friends tell me that's about seven miles, I understand. And they talked together of those things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And then verse 16 says, But their eyes were holden that they should not recognize him. What does that mean? I have no idea. But whatever it is, it's going to get undone in verse 31. So just hang in there for a minute. Anyway, they don't recognize him. He joins them. And by the way, these are not casual disciples. Cleopas, which is one of them, going to be interesting in a minute, is with them in the upper room. So he's part of the, he's not the one of the twelve, but he's part of the inner group. He knows, you know, he's, not a, he's not a casual guy. Anyway, verse 17. Jesus says to them, what manner of communications are these that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast thou not known the things which are come to pass here in these days? And I love this. Talk about a sense of humor. Jesus, Jesus said unto him, What things? <laughs> I just, I get, I get a kick out of this. He gives you another insight. The, here these guys are walking. He joins them. They don't recognize who he is. And he says, hey guys, why are you so blue? What's bothering you? You know, as if, you know, what's up? You know, they turn to him and say, where have you been, fella? You know, in effect. And he says, what things? Now here's a guy, a few days ago, was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, put through six mock trials, then beat up rather, rather badly, crucified dead, buried, risen from the dead, and he can look them in the eye and say, what things? <laughs> <laughs> and they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and would have cruci uh, crucified him. But we were hoping that it had been he who, uh, who should have redeemed Israel. And besides all, this is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also in our company amazed us, who were at the, early at the sepulcher. And they found not his body. And they came saying that they uh, had also seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. And certain of those who were, who were with us went to the sepulcher and found it, even as they had said. But him they saw not. And then Jesus picks it up and says, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Interesting phrase. You know, if you and I were doing the shooting script of the scene, we'd have maybe a flash of lightning, uh, some, kind of, some kind of wild, hey guys, it's me, you know. He doesn't do that. He speaks of himself in the third person. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? He's speaking. You know, that guy, he's saying. But he says something else here. Oh, foolish one, slow of heart um, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All. 
You know, the interesting thing about the book of Genesis is not the creation and all that. A lot of people get hung up on that. That's great, fine. The interesting thing in the book of Genesis is that Jesus Christ is on every page. The scripture says, he says, the volume of the book is written of me. Every detail in the Torah, every detail in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is, speaks of the person of Jesus Christ. There's probably not a technical detail in there that you can disconnect from the person of Jesus Christ. What a challenge. I'll leave that with you. Because then Jesus, anyway, verse 27, he says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't ever be self-conscious about being interested in Bible prophecy. The first thing, first uh, lesson that Jesus gives after his resurrection is an Old Testament Bible study of prophecy. Interesting. And they drew near unto the village to which they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat eating with them, that he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That's pretty weird, actually. Breaking the bread was the normal task of the host. He's a guest. He was going to go on. They talked him to staying for dinner. He does. Who's breaking the bread? He is. That's out of step, if we will, etiquette-wise. But something else happens. It's kind of interesting in verse 31. He broke the bread, gave it to them. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened that they recognized him, and then he vanished out of their sight. We don't know what it was that caused them suddenly to recognize that which they did not recognize for a seven-mile Bible study. But the conjecture by most commentators is they saw his nail prints when he broke the bread. And that flat, it's him. It's him. But again, the undercurrent here that bothers me a little bit is that um, there's something wrong. Why didn't they recognize him for seven miles? They were at the cross. They saw him crucified. That's what they're blue about. Now he disappears there because he's got a date in Jerusalem that night. In fact, Cleopas is with him, and you can't tell from this account, but, it's, but he apparently was with the group. But anyway, picking up you know, from verse 33, oh, one other thing that's kind of neat, verse 32, after he disappears, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us along the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Well, that's the kind of heartburn we all want, isn't it? Then they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he hath appeared uh, to Simon. And uh, they told those things which uh, were done along the way and how he, he was uh, known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, again, you see, he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's why we tend to conjecture. It's a, a speculation on our part. We believe it was the nail prints that tipped him off, made him realize what was going on here. Verse 36. And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And then verse 37 bothers me. And they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. For them to be shocked and surprised, I guess, is our, certainly because he's back from the dead, understandably. Why are they terrified? Why are they frightened? They might be startled. Why are they frightened? Something, something's going on here. We'll come to it in a minute. Then he said to them, Why are ye troubled? And why do, do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Interesting. 
What's his identity? His wounds. That's how they know it's him. Somebody said there, the only man-made things in heaven are scars. The only man-made things in heaven are his scars. When he thus spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they yet believed not for while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? My kind of guy. I like that. <laughs> well, as you know, he told them to tarry in Galilee, and he eventually rejoined them. So, indeed, uh, the next place I'd like to just take a peek at uh, is uh, John 21. Everything we've talked about so far is down in Jerusalem, down in Judea. But now we're going to shift up north to the Sea of Galilee. In accordance with his instruction, they went up there to tarry. He told them that he would join them. And they're waiting around. And as you, what you do when you're waiting around and a little frustrated, you generally retreat to some skill or some interest you have in which you can feel comfortable. And so these guys, the four of them, were in partnership in a fishing business. So what are they going to do? They're going to go fishing. Makes sense, huh? Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I go fishing. Said unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a boat immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Now this doesn't surprise me. It's misty morning. It's way on shore. They're at sea, so there's somebody standing. They don't recognize him. Okay, I can buy that. Verse 5, it says, Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered, No. You know, hey, guys, you catch anything? No. All night long, nothing. They caught nothing. Verse 6, he says, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and ye shall find. And they cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fish. I'm always amused by this. It's like the fish can know, you know? I'm, I, I remember when I was down at Newport Pier, we used to watch early morning... Uh, when somebody catches a fish on one side of the pier, everybody moves that side of the pier. You know? <laughs> You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.